Hello and welcome to January's episode of the Network 5 Emergency Medicine Journal Club podcast. This month's topic is workplace violence in the ED, which seems to be an increasingly relevant topic within the emergency medicine sphere. We are very lucky to be joined today by clinical nurse consultant and researcher, Margaret Murphy, psychiatry CNC, Adamina Drakowitz, and ED staff specialist, Dr. Lex Narishevich. So before we start, why don't we do a round the table introduction so you know what everyone's voices sound like. Hey, I'm Amanda. I'm one of the EDATs at Westmead. Hi, I'm Margaret Murphy. I'm uh, the CNC in ED and uh, thank you for the invitation to be involved. Hi, I'm Adamina. I'm one of the psych CNCs. I'm Lex, one of FACEMs that works at Nepean and Westmead and gone through two fairly significant code blacks with shootings. Hi, I'm Aaron. I'm one of the EDSRMOs. Thanks for having me. Hi, it's Pramod again, joining for another episode this month. Keen for the discussion. Hey, this is Shreyas again, just joining for another episode. My name is Arvind. I'm one of the EDATs at Tweet. Um, thanks for having me. Hi, it's Harry. All right, thanks everyone. So I think I'm really excited for what we've got planned for this month. So why don't we just jump right into it? So first up, we've got Aaron, one of our EDSRMOs, presenting a paper titled Workplace Violence in the Emergency Department, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis, which was published in the EMA in 2017 by Nikathil et al. So Aaron, I'll hand it over to you. Thanks, Carolyn. So workplace violence in the ED is a prominent issue experienced by EDs across Australia. Studies examining violence in the ED consistently report a high prevalence of verbal aggression, followed by threats, then physical abuse, and multiple surveys reflect high rates of exposure to workplace violence among staff members. However, there's a lack of recent literature on the proportion of violence in terms of patient presentations and incidents. Workplace violence in the ED is a systematic review and meta-analysis published in 2017 in EMA. The primary author, Nikathil, at the time was a medical student at Monash University and was supported by research fellow Dr. Alausen, as well as two emergency physicians and a psychiatrist. This systematic review aimed to quantify workplace violence in the ED. It also aimed to quantify the association of workplace violence to drug and alcohol exposure. So a brief introduction, the review of workplace violence reported the prevalence of violence in Australian emergency departments as at least 36 events per 10,000 patients. And this is considering underreporting. With about 45 in every 100 violent presentations estimated to be associated with alcohol and or other drugs. This review indicated the importance of future research to establishing interventions to predicting violent behavior to combat it. Unfortunately, there was a wide heterogeneity in the papers reviewed in terms of study methodology, definitions, and rates. The review opened with the statement that patients or visitor-perpetrated workplace violence has been reported to be a common occurrence in the ED. Previous areas of research into this area examining violence in the ED consistently reported a high prevalence of aggression followed by threats than physical abuse. The paper indicated that the true incidence of workplace violence is unclear. Indeed, there's abundant international data with International Labor Office paper in 2002 indicating that the World Health Organization estimates 8 to 38% of healthcare workers have experienced physical violence at least once during their career. However, there's significant variation in countries and a preliminary search revealed no other Australian figures or data. 
The significance of this was elucidated in research by the World Health Organization in Geneva, which has established that the workplace violence has significant effects on a worker's psychological and physical health over the short and long term, and significant economic and social costs for workers, workplaces, and the wider community. So from 7,300 abstracts to an extensive literature search, 22 studies were deemed relevant. The eligibility criteria describe the population being studied, that is the number of violent or aggressive patients or visitors in the ED among the total presenting population. In addition, studies that quantified proportion of drug and alcohol affected individuals among the violent or aggressive ED patients or visitor groups also qualified. There was no intervention or comparison group. A meta-analysis was conducted on the primary outcome variable, proportion of violent patients among ED presentations. Secondary meta-analysis used studies reporting on proportion of drug and alcohol-affected patients occurring in violent population. The pooled incidents suggested there are 36 violent patients for every 10,000 presentations. This had a slightly wide confidence interval of 0.003 to 0.0043, and this is mostly due to the disparity in the definition of violence between the papers reviewed. One paper reported violence at 1 per 10,000. It only included studies with weapons related assaults. In contrast, another study had 172 episodes per 10,000, as it included all episodes of violence or aggression as defined by the victim through incident reports. So there needs to be a more standardized definition of workplace violence, and this can be achieved through standardized national collection of data. While the ED is a recognized setting of workplace violence, the true incidence remains unclear due to a culture of underreporting. Due to statistical heterogeneity and underreporting, the results are not a true reflection of the incidents. Hence, the authors did not really achieve an accurate representation of this incidence of workplace violence. The studies reviewed unanimously reported that young males were the primary demonstrators of violence. However, there was discordance in what type of violence predominated, with two, two papers reporting higher proportions of verbal violence, aggression, and two papers reporting higher proportions of physical violence. The grade criteria, which was the criteria used to assess the study quality, rated the quality of evidence to be very low and the risk of bias as serious as critical confounders such as country of origin and clinician or population demographics and time of presentation were not well evaluated by the studies. The review also is limited by the lack of objective studies on workplace violence incidents, as most of the studies in the literature found were mainly surveys and less quantitative data. There was also wide heterogeneity in the incidence of workplace violence in EDs globally, as established by the World Health Organization. So in trying to include all the countries in the world, there was a predominant mix of American studies, but also Australian and other countries' studies. And this limits the applicability of, of the results to any one country. A study focusing on the incidence of workplace violence in the ED in Australia would likely yield a more reliable incidence. The studies within the review focus more on research done in urban environments. So as a major tertiary hospital, Westmead ED sees well over 75,000 presentations and is one of the busiest in Australia and has a higher proportion of violence than many other EDs. And so it's very hard to estimate uh, incidents with the current news articles, you can see there's also a high prevalence of near-death accidents and more severe violence in major metropolitan centres. And this was not well reflected in this study. Thank you, Aaron, for that. I personally have always assumed some level of at least kind of verbal violence to be a part of the job we do. But I was just curious to kind of throw it out to the panel. I mean, 36 
in 10,000 presentations to me seems like quite a low estimate of workplace violence, but I was wondering what other people thought about that number that's been generated by this study. I might jump in there, Caroline, just because I had actually looked through the ASIM guidelines, which we'll touch on when I do my paper a bit later. But so I agree with you, 36 in 10,000 really isn't a large number when you think about it, but that meta-analysis actually found that 45% of those presentations were drug and alcohol patients, which I guess for our particular demographic is quite a substantial proportion. And I'm sure Lex and Adamina and Margaret have many, many, many stories to back this up. But that study also referenced another sub-study that the college had referenced back in 2011, where nine out of 10 ASIM members, so that's only medical staff, right? That doesn't even include nurses, admin staff, whoever else, security, whoever else is in the department. Nine out of 10 of the doctors reported feeling threatened by a patient and four out of 10 of them reported physical assault, which if you think about it only being 36 in 10,000 patients, that's quite a lot of violence that such a small proportion of our presentations is showing, which I think is quite significant if you look at it that way. Yeah, I think that's quite a horrible thing to think about. And again, I'll touch on it more in my paper, but I think it's sort of part of our culture that we kind of accept that this is part of it. Like you said, we don't even think of it as being violent we just accept the fact that we're going to get yelled at or someone's going to say something racist or sexist or condescending or like in frustration but I think though that number is quite small what we see is probably quite a lot more than that as well. Yeah look I'd comment that one of the problems is data collection here I mean to fill in an IMSS report is not a small task I think there's obviously a feeling that a lot of the violence particularly verbal assault is just comes with the territory and we get desensitized to it and we see that as normal, which it ain't. But how much how much data are you collecting for how much actual episodes of violence is there? I'd say it's a small proportion. I, I don't know how you'd prove that, but I think it's fair to say that most episodes which would fit the definition of violence, if it's not a particularly violent episode by our own standards, we tend not to report it. I completely agree, Lex. I think there was two things that sort of really stood out for me from this paper. And Caroline, my first question was going to be exactly what you asked, which was just sort of going around the room and finding out, you know, what people feel about that 36 and 100,000, because to me, that's a vanishingly small number. Obviously, data collection was an issue. I mean, the inclusion criteria for the meta-analysis was essentially reliant on the IMSS reports or registers of restraint. And even something as objective as uh, restraint registers, we know certainly every single emergency department that I've ever worked in has been terrible at maintaining that data properly. So I think, you know, this is clearly an underreport, but by how much? I don't know that there's any objective or reliable way to work out the frequency of verbal abuse or even threat perception other than sort of you know, subjective reporting by collecting, you know, staff interviews. I think that this sort of data analysis is probably only really useful when it comes to working out what the prevalence of actual incidents of violence. And really, to me, that number should be small because when you're when you're sedating someone or responding to a behavioral emergency, the idea is to do it before someone has been assaulted, not after. I guess that was take home number one for me. The second thing is, I think it's an interesting reflection of the standards that we walk past, isn't it? I remember when I was in Westmead, one of our senior nurses, who's also a navigator, was pretty nastily abused by a patient who, you know, said something to the words of threatening to murder her family. And when I went to check on her after, she said, oh, don't worry, my dad has already passed. So, you know, he can't do anything to me and just sort of shrugged it off. And then 
she went on to tell me that she was disappointed at his lack of creativity in threatening her because she's only ever amused when people find out a novel new way to insult her. For example, someone apparently called her a slug and she was a bit more amused by that as opposed to someone just using a few swear words, which is garden variety. I think every single one of us has experienced this in the ED and and certainly the nurses in particular bear the brunt of it. It's amazing that it's something that we just accept day in, day out. And there's clearly a gap in our actual reporting and recording of this. We, we see this a lot in emergency medicine when it comes to overcrowding, when it comes to access block, when it comes to violence, when it comes to dealing with these problems, we just put our heads down and deal with it. And we're actually really bad at maintaining any sort of consistent data to suggest to even record that there's a problem, let alone then doing something further about it. Reminds me of an anecdote about a triage nurse who got called a skinny by a patient. She said, actually, thanks for that. That's quite a compliment. She's been trying to lose weight. So, I mean, I don't know if that's resilience or just that we're so exposed to it, we become desensitized. I guess something you could do is because IMS reporting is quite difficult. I mean, maybe one of you guys or one of your colleagues or someone at home can think about this, but just a QR code report that's just an, an MRN and then a what actually, you know, a one word, what happened or a drop down, that'd probably be more effective in collecting data because it's not too much of a stress for one thing. Maybe that might be someone's project in future. That's a really good idea. And we're certainly increasingly using QR codes for a number of other things. So why not this? We definitely like overall in emergency medicine, both for this and for other things, we need to work out ways in which we can collect data that are going to be not as intrusive as having to sit down and do a half an hour IMS report or, you know, something of that nature. We're actually able to quantify things a bit more consistently because otherwise we're really not going to achieve any policy change if we don't have any data to back us up. Lex, that sounds like an awesome idea, having something like a QR code that people can access quite easily. And Mm -hmm. I mean, even the idea of just promoting having a QR code might make people actually think about the behaviour that they're receiving in an emergency department and whether or not that's acceptable. So I think that's a really, really good idea. Even have an app where, you know, and stars from one to five and today, you know, you know, this incident caused me to react in this way. I've been an emergency nurse for a long time in, in many hospitals and I don't think the incidence of aggression has decreased or increased. I mean, I worked in an inner city emergency department when I came here and uh, I was probably initially startled at the amount of particularly verbal uh, aggression that was around as as a young emergency nurse coming to Australia. I hadn't experienced that degree of it when I worked in Ireland. We have been taught to build resilience uh, around it. That's good and that's not good uh, because it builds your defense mechanisms. And then you learn to manage it, as in manage the patient and manage the behavior. I think it's also difficult with the data collection because what defines violence? So it's the definition as well. And it's, it's a little bit like bullying, I suspect. It's like it's how you react and it's what you feel in the moment. And I just think if you had something to actually... Uh, reflect how you were feeling in the moment. It's almost like the faces. Uh, you could, you know, at least have a trend around like this non-physical aggression that is a, certainly a triage. You, you find a lot of it. But again, is it the environment we work in? Is, is it the setup that patients, is it their frustration? It never, it hasn't seemed to got any better or worse. And, it, you know, we don't see patients at their best. And that's kind of how I approach it. I understand we don't see people at their best, you know. 
I have been vomited on. I have been, you know, so we don't physically, we also, you know, have to respond to unusual and not very normal circumstances. So I think the whole thing is quite complex and it's around definition, it's around data collection, and it's around individuality. Uh, Obviously, there's the obvious ones, the obvious insults and uh, racial slurs and people, uh, you know, imitating your accents, etc., are not all to be uh, tolerated. And as a nurse, you have to learn to to manage that, particularly at triage, but again, remain professional and, you know, just literally be above it rather than go at it. It's definitely a very complex issue. I think what I just find astounding is that we don't have any data on it. And I think, you know, in order to potentially come up with some solutions or some ways of managing it, I mean, we need the data to begin with as the foundation from which to kind of go forward. And I'm sure we'll talk about that later in today's episode. So I understand that, you know, obviously people don't want to report if it's going to take a long time and to do an IMSS report or something. And then there's also the issue of, you know, people being desensitised and just assuming that that comes with the territory. Can we think of any other reasons why this data is so hard to collect? In 2005, I think it was, MJA published an article on violence in the EDs and their rate at that time was three per thousand. So if you do the math on it, we're now looking at 3.6 per thousand. So, I mean, I don't know what the statistical significance of that change is, but I think we've known about this for, well, over 15 years. There is data being collected. I think it's more about that next step of evidence of what's actually contributing to this. Really, what we want to get to is what interventions do we have that are going to make a difference? There's nothing in that domain. But I think it's pretty clear that we've known about this for some time. We knew 15 years ago that it was three in a thousand. I think um, part of the challenge comes from what Margaret was saying around the linguistics of the use of aggression. I think in the ED, it's a unique environment where there's an overlap between pathological disease factors patient factors and environmental factors, and the degree to which a single one of those three contributes to a patient's manifestation of behavior determines what we see in the ED. And then I guess it also determines the degree to which we perceive something as being acceptable or not acceptable. So for example, I was reducing a shoulder in an agitated autistic 13-year-old who weighed about 130 kilos, and I copped a right hook while I was trying to restrain his other hand to administer intramuscular midazolam. Now, yes, by any objective measure, that was physical violence. However, the context of that is significantly different to a angry 38-year-old male who's high on amphetamines, trying to trash behind triage and, you know, uh, sort of accosts the nursing staff or or attempts to assault someone. I think from a medical point of view, or from a clinician's point of view, rather, the perception of those two incidents are very different. And what the data tries to do, or the data collection methods currently try to do, is homogenize all of that. And I think what happens is you end up losing a lot of the complexity behind what the etiology of a lot of these incidences of violence are. And so that is, I think, one of the biggest challenges in the data collection process. It's because it's much more complicated than just, do you feel threatened in the workplace? I think most clinicians would respond differently to those two situations in terms of their ability to express empathy and their ability to deem one as acceptable and part of the job and another one as unacceptable and not part of the job. However, the data doesn't reflect those nuances. Now, I don't have an answer to that problem. I don't know the best way in which to contextualize the data and to make it more 
well-grained in, in the analysis of it. And I think that's why a lot of these statistics fall flat with me. Like the idea that there's a three in a thousand incidents. I look at that and I just laugh because I've seen probably less than 10,000 patients and I've definitely been assaulted more than a hundred times. And so that's just an anecdotal thing for myself. But when I look at that data, I don't understand how to relate to it because it's not speaking to my experience. And I think that's another reason why the literature is so disenchanting when it comes to this, because I can understand when people write papers on the incidence of chest pain, because that's something to which I can see and relate to. But when we talk about incidences of workplace violence, I find that the literature reporting is just way out of sync with what I'm seeing clinically in the ED and the experiences with which I talk to other clinicians about. I find there's a big dissonance there. And I think that's why a lot of the implementation strategies have fallen flat because a lot of people find that the data from which the interventions are derived is not reflective of their own personal clinical experience. And so none of it feels real or genuine. That's at least my opinion and experience. I'd be interested to hear what other people think, particularly around that idea of pathology and manifestation of behavioral disturbance and how that would change how you would perceive an incident of violence. Would anyone in the group see those two as being equal, getting hit by a, a child who's behaviorally challenged in an attempt to provide a therapeutic procedure versus being assaulted by someone who comes in intoxicated versus being assaulted by someone who has no medical problem and is just, you know, not a very nice person? Do those three fall into the same category? From the point of view of unacceptability and from the point of view of needing to protect your staff, in a certain sense, they probably are equal. We need to, you know, obviously make sure that all of our staff are, you know, at minimal physical risk. But I'd say that the overlay in terms of sort of psychological risk for staff members in each of those different situations is completely different. Because as you say, there's a very simple way to rationalize the fact that you've got a distressed child who has lashed out in an attempt to protect itself from something that it can't understand versus being assaulted by someone who is just being nasty. One of the other themes that was covered in this paper was the contribution of drugs and alcohol to violence presentations. And again, as consistent, you know, throughout the data that was reported in this paper, there was a lot of heterogeneity, but I guess the consistent theme was that at least it was a substantial component, whether it was 30% or 50%, you know, depending on which paper you read. I wonder two things going along with your question, how accountable is someone who is intoxicated for the behavior that manifests from their intoxication, particularly when it is in relation to an addiction? Adamina, I'd love your interest in this. The other sort of consistent group that tends to have blame attributed in terms of violent episodes in the ED is the mentally ill. From your understanding of the evidence, are there particular groups among the mentally ill cohort who are actually at higher risk of violent behavior? Or is all of this just a stereotype? Are we putting all the people in the same basket unfairly? I think there is definitely higher rates in people that have a dual diagnosis, so um, mental illness plus a substance use disorder, and also people with your cluster B personality disorders. And those patients make up about almost 30% of all psychiatric presentations. So there are a large population you know, of people that present and they often have you know, lower levels of stress tolerance. They're quite labile when they're upset. And I think we don't really have enough time to sit down with these patients and, and sort of de-escalate them. One of the main things I think that comes up with all of this is how much trauma-informed care people get. So what we found in not taking away from emergency, but in mental health wards is that staff perception of these patients really changed their attitude towards them. So for example, if we felt that a drug and alcohol client or a patient that, you know, might just be nasty, we tended to use more 
I guess, coercive responses towards them because we felt that they have the capacity to control themselves. So I think it just depends on how much training someone has. And also, I think I can only speak for nursing, but we tend to sort of gaslight our own staff and dismiss their own complaints. Like we always compare things to worst case scenario. So if you were abused by a patient verbally, it might be like, well, you won't stab today. So on a scale of one to 10, it's not that bad. But I think if we were to truly report all episodes of violence or aggression, the number would be a lot higher. Like I also agree. I I think this 36 violent presentations in 10,000 presentations is probably not accurate and it's very, very much underreported. Just listening to a few previous experiences has made me reflect on numerous times where, um, you know, I've, I've encountered verbal abuse from patients, but I think each and every time I've, I've subconsciously have have said, oh, the patient has an underlying mental health issue um, or an acquired brain injury or a personality, or they they were in a lot of pain. I had a very similar case of a patient with a shorter dislocation who became verbally quite aggressive. And other than maybe reporting in the notes that that the patient said this or did this, I never, yeah, I never once um, reported the incident. I sort of justified their reaction, whereas I probably should have, and that probably contributes to a lot of underreporting. I think maybe a lot of us do that. We sort of justify people's actions. I think that's a really good point. It goes to culpability. Like how responsible is a patient who comes to the ED? Promote, you touched on this um, with your three case scenarios. I'm, I'm interested in what everyone else thinks. Is someone who has an addiction truly more culpable than someone who is psychiatrically unwell? At the same time, we have to accept that also there is some people who are just nasty. The TV thing of what to do when you come to an emergency department is to yell at the triage nurse that you get, you know, you get your person seen too quickly. This happens in so many TV shows. And so it's like the cultural thing to do. I wonder how much culture contributes to this stuff as well. And the expectation that patients can come, they can yell at staff, they can be nasty and have zero consequences where if this happened on the street, the police would be involved. I think that's an interesting point. I mean, at least the way I view it, I kind of think, I don't know how much we should be thinking about how responsible a patient should be for the way they behave. I think patients with addiction, everyone's got reasons for why they behave the way they do. And I don't think we should be looking to assign blame to anyone for their behaviour. I don't necessarily think that's overly productive. I think it is important to think about how someone's behaviour makes you feel and being in an environment or having a system set up to allow those feelings to be validated in some way and allowing you to process it, I think is important. And I just don't know like whether there's any point kind of fixating on, well, they're mentally ill, therefore they're allowed to do X, Y, and someone else isn't. Like, I think everyone who comes to ED is coming with their own emergency, whether or not we perceive it to be so or not. And they're obviously stressed and not having a good day. So I think I can definitely see that. This is something that I really struggle with because I've had multiple situations where I've been in a situation where a staff member has been attacked. And my response has always been, if this happened to you on the street, you would call the police. And this person would be held responsible for the fact that they've physically attacked someone. So they should be held similarly responsible for the fact that this happened in in an emergency department. But at the same time, you're right. Do I want security to take the same approach to demented Nana who's arcing up versus to 30-year-old 150 kilo guy who is behaving in a menacing way, you know, absolutely not. And you're right that there's only a certain degree towards, you know, how productive it is towards assigning blame. And I think perhaps this this goes towards how much we just tend to dismiss 
verbal assault and verbal violence is because we tend to think that it comes as part of the territory. Even the people who are still in capacity to control their own behavior, they're still in the emergency department for a reason, as you said, Caroline, and they're stressed and anxious and in pain and unwell potentially. And so, you know, all of these things clearly inform their behavior. I think everyone's going to have a different answer to this, but I think at some point it needs to be standardized. What is the line? Where, you know, how much do we accept and what should we say is clearly unacceptable? I think there's never going to be a unanimous line there, though. It comes down to how you as the clinician feel interacting with that patient. And if you've been offended or whatever, or, you know, you've been abused, there should be a way of validating and processing those feelings. And I think someone might say something to one staff member and they may not even react and to someone else that may completely destroy their day. Like, I don't know whether you can really draw a line there. I think I'm kind of in two minds about this because I'm very much in the boat of self-protection. I think we see a lot of things that a lot of people wouldn't necessarily see in their day-to-day line of work, right? So for the most part, I'm assuming a lot of us are in our 20s and 30s, right? How many 20 and 30-year-olds have seen people die, you know, have to tell family members that their loved ones got cancer, all these kinds of things, right? There's all these other things that our job entails that are emotionally quite draining. And I think this is one thing that can be not fixed, but I guess exactly what Caroline's saying, like, if you can acknowledge the way that we respond to these sorts of situations, try and figure out a way to protect ourselves. But I also think that exactly what Shreyas is saying, you know, there's not really a line that can be drawn, but, you know, if someone walked into a bank and was verbally abusive, they would be removed from the facility. The staff there wouldn't tolerate that kind of behavior. So what's so different about our environment that we have to sit and tolerate that kind of thing as well? I think it's really tricky, right? So like, for example, I was on a night shift last week in the ICU And a patient who was stepped out, was ready to go to the ward, you know, so awake, alert, had a history of traumatic brain injury, spent the entire night telling the nurse that he was going to slash her jugular because he wanted a cup of coffee. And he's a COVID patient. So this poor nurse had to keep donning and doffing to go inside the room. And she kept asking me for a sleeping tablet, like to be prescribed for this patient all night. And I had medical reasons for not prescribing that. So she had to sit there and cop that abuse all night. And you could just see the toll that it was taking on her. That's horrible. Maybe part of it is the fact that we're in healthcare. You know, you can't really deny someone the right to healthcare, obviously, which is a bit different to being in, you know, a bank or in a law office or in a school or or wherever else it may be. So that's a bit tricky to kind of mediate. That raises a good point, Amanda. How much do we need to tolerate and what is our legal requirement? From my perspective, if someone is coming in with something that is not medically urgent, and they don't have a life or limb-threatening problem, and they're going to be abusive, I have no obligation to keep them in in my facility for them to abuse my staff. Is that a correct legal sort of interpretation of the law? Am I protected in making that assertion, or is that wrong? I try to discriminate between someone who's upset or agitated and angry versus someone who's abusive. And I think that someone who's upset or angry or shouting needs to have those feelings addressed and acknowledged. And I think verbal de-escalation is definitely underutilized in that situation. When someone is overtly just being nasty to people, there isn't an underlying problem that could explain that behavior, such as a mental health issue or psychosis or a an intoxication or something like that, then I'm not inclined to accept that. From a legal framework, it has to be a case by case, like how you see them, how they present clinically. But in terms of how much do you tolerate, I think we do ourselves a disservice by not 
reporting every single act of aggression and violence, whether it's somebody who has a clinical reason, such as significant autism or an intellectual disability. If we are to report these incidents, it will at least show that, you know, these people need more time clinically. We have to spend more time with them to de-escalate them or provide treatment to them. So I wonder if we were to report all of these incidents, maybe it might be sort of an argument for why we need more staffing or more equipment or more security. How much people tolerate? I think it should be zero. Realistically, I don't know how we'd be able to do that. But I don't think that it's okay that staff work in an environment where they feel unsafe or they feel threatened. So I guess what I would touch on there is the sort of framework I would use to assess a patient. I mean, I think everyone would take the view, which I think is healthy, that you've got to look at does the patient have capacity and do they need to be in hospital? We, we give everyone the benefit of the doubt straight up, like we do. I think that's one of the reasons we tolerate a degree of aggression and violence. The first thing to do is a, a bit of a capacity assessment, which everyone can do. And if you find the patient doesn't have capacity, well, you've got a duty to care. You've got to look after them. That's the end of the story. And if that means, you know, you need to keep them even though they're unpleasant and you need to do things to keep them in a safe way, then that's fair enough. That's illegal. If the patient, after you assess them, has capacity, then the next step is, do they have a good medical or psychiatric reason to, to stay in hospital? Would you, under other circumstances, admit the patient to hospital? If the answer is yes, then again, I think you're sort of stuck. You've got the patient, you've got a duty of care to the patient, they've got a legitimate reason for admission, you're really going to admit the patient. If the patient doesn't have a legitimate reason for admission, then whether they were violent or not, they, you wouldn't normally admit them, then you can, as long as you articulate that really well in the documentation, I think you've got a place for saying, no, you don't need to be in hospital, you're going to be discharged. And if they refuse to go, there's a conflict there, you, you work it out, you involve a senior where there's one available, you involve the numb, you make sure everyone's on the same page, you, you rationalise that as a group decision, it's not a unilateral decision that you've explained to the patient. And then if it comes to the, a point where their violence or their perceived threat of violence or their aggression is a problem, yeah, you can remove them from the hospital. You can do that. We've done it before. It's not It's not a lot of fun. It, it's a big event and usually things escalate, but sometimes to protect staff, if there's not a good reason to admit the patient to hospital, you can do that. But I think everything would be a case-by-case -case basis and it would be analysed later on. And so your documentation, your reasoning has to be pretty on point. Thanks, Lex. That's actually a really helpful, very logical way to think about it. On paper, it's easy, but try doing it in the real world when the patient's screaming, carrying on, throwing chairs yeah. around. It's it, it's hard and it takes a lot of resources. As you're attempting to de-escalate, you're attempting to assess, it becomes really complicated. And I think for these patients, that's the issue, that the resource drain that's associated with it means there's an opportunity cost for other patients too. And how do you quantify and justify that level of staffing required to deal with that to the executive of a hospital that says, oh, we've got one to four nursing. Well, that's not really going to work. So it, it's really hard. We talk about the cost and the resources that are required to maintain code blacks and to escalate things. But then we also say at the same time, we don't have the time to de-escalate these patients verbally. Obviously, I've seen a lot of bosses do these things in different ways. Pramod, I actually have sort of a small anecdote about Pramod doing this when I was working with him at Auburn, which is a smaller hospital, less resources. There's a patient who had been interacting with the doctor in a verbally aggressive manner. Pramod was, a, he probably doesn't remember this, but he was a senior on that day and he went and spent some time talking to that patient. History of drug and alcohol abuse, history of mental health. So one of your stock standard, quote unquote, aggressive patients. And then we sort of stepped away. Pramod was doing some teaching somewhere else. And then this patient walked past our room 
specifically made an effort to knock on the door, open the door and say, hello, thank you, doctor. You listened to me. That's all I wanted. I was frustrated. I'm really sorry I said these things, but you actually treated me like a human being. You treated me like a person. You didn't label me as a mental health or a drug addicted person. And that made me feel better. I'm going to go home now. And that obviously took a consultant's time away from the floor, took it away from teaching, that kind of thing. In a, again, a smaller hospital where you have less resources, but it maintained a calm situation. I mean, I, I agree with you. Like, I think it's hard to spend time with these patients, but if you do spend an extra 10 minutes talking to them, I'm sure Adamina probably has an opinion similar to this because she does spend more time than we would from a medical point of view with our psych patients. Um, you do get the opportunity to understand where they're coming from and de-escalate. I think we shouldn't estimate the importance of the skill of discussion uh, de-escalation. And I think we should recognise that that is an essential skill that an, an emergency clinician needs. I agree with Lex, context is, is everything. But, you know, just like you're good at physical assessment and communication, de-escalation is a skill that we all need and we all have it at varying degrees and we all do it differently. But I think it's a skill that we should put up there front and uh, centre. You know, I've trained triage nurses. This is a harsh thing to say. There can be a trend associated with certain personalities at triage and they're going to have a really difficult day and they're never going to like triage. I think it's around the skills of communication. And when I train people in triage, I say, like, if you don't like people, if you don't like communicating, if you don't like conflict, this is not the role for you. Think about it. Think if you really want to be here, because that's where you're going to really fine tune your skills. And we all know that when we're upset or agitated, that it being treated the appropriate way doesn't escalate the issue. That's not to de-emphasize the impact of these aggressive situations, but it's just like, you know, the adrenaline rush of a cardiac arrest, the adrenaline rush of this conflict needs to be a skill that we need to be able to use to manage the situation. So context is everything with skill. That's a really useful point, Margaret. I think particular senior emergency clinicians, we need to be really wary of false economies. There's a lot of pressure on us to do a million things at once, but some things are just worth the time taken. And really, if you do it properly, when you have the initial opportunity to, you often end up saving time later because that first interaction with the agitated patient, which de-escalates, keeps them calm, settles things down, addresses their concerns, gives them an understanding of what's going on, might take 10 or 15 minutes, but it means that you don't have to spend 30 minutes later dealing with the fact that they've started being much more threatening, or you don't have to repeatedly go back to deal with sort of progressive escalations in their behavior because you've already sort of addressed the problem at its root. What you touched on, Amanda, is so important that you know there's definitely a deficit here, which happens, I think, with a lot of emergency clinicians, medical and nursing. I think we get desensitized. You're definitely right, Margaret. There's definitely a, a component of our own personalities and our own projections on this, where we sometimes tend to react to certain types of people and certain classes of people in a more aggressive way than is initially necessary. You know, I've certainly witnessed a change in myself over the last couple of years in how I deal with these things, just from observing other people. Initially, I think for a while, I thought that I needed to be the big assertive one who needed to lay down the law for, for patients whenever they arced up. And that used to be my approach. And then I observed some of the emergency consultants at Westmead. And, you know, there's a variety of approaches on, on view at Westmead. To name a name, uh, Rachel Boddy, one of our senior staff specialists, is 
incredible at dealing with these situations. And the thing that I noticed is that every single time her first approach is, is something wrong? How can I help? And she immediately starts by displaying a degree of empathy in people who are marginalized. I think starting with an empathic approach and actually showing that you are concerned for their welfare speaks a huge amount in how things will progress after that initial interaction, because those people don't react well to being marginalized purely for the fact that they've been marginalized for their whole lives. So I think that's a really important point. I do wonder about the other thing though. My wife has been in a similar situation to what you were alluding to Lex in terms of a patient who needed to be admitted, but who was abusive and threatening and very problematic. There was consistent issues raised in that particular hospital, you know, from nursing staff, from medical staff. And it took a very, I think a longer time than should have taken for that patient to be removed. Now, there was an incident where there was a serious attempt at assault against her. And I, I can certainly speak to my emotions when, when I found out about that incident, where I felt, you know, it, it was a near miss, but if she'd actually been injured in that episode, then I would sue the hospital and I would do that shamelessly as a, as a healthcare professional, knowing that it would impact my career. Because at the end of the day, the hospital had a duty of care to her and she was injured at work. And it was a situation that could have been prevented, but wasn't. And so, you know, that might be an element of defensiveness as a partner, you know, that, that comes into it. I think that we need to be really clear in our minds about where we're going to draw a line. And that may be different for every person. And obviously there's a role towards taking a nuanced approach to begin with. But at the same time, I really feel strongly that there's some things that people shouldn't get away with. And certainly, even if we're going to not hold a patient accountable, we should at least make sure that we've taken every step possible to keep our staff safe. I think that might be an opportunity to stop the discussion for the moment. I don't want to, but I think that's probably laid a really good foundation for the discussion we've got going forward. So thank you everyone for your input. It's clearly a very complex issue that affects us all on a day-to-day basis. Um, Aaron, did you want to just finish off by giving us some take-home points from that paper and the discussion we've had? So for me, I think this proportion of 35 in 10,000, I think it represents the significant episodes of violence rather than the total number of aggression or physical or verbal abuse that occurs in an emergency department. It's the numbers that have made it to be recorded and therefore should be taken in that context rather than be interpreted as the overall for me, that's important because sticks and stones can break your bones, but words can never hurt. It, that's true in a certain extent, but a more significant form of verbal or physical abuse is always going to matter more. And for me, you've come into medicine because you, you want to make a difference and have a positive impact on society. And you don't expect to be hurt doing this or physically abused. So things that are more significant are very important for us to note down and record and should be considered more significantly. So I take that 35 and 10,000 or 50% of patients that are drug influenced during this as something that politicians and lawmakers should heed when implementing changes because it's more of a significant number. And so that's 35 cases of significant violence that have significant repercussions that have got to the point that they needed to be recorded. And so it's a very weighted number. So that brings us to the end of our first segment for this month's episode on workplace violence. Thank you everyone for tuning in. 